Have you ever uh, felt so much love for someone that you just felt like you were going to explode? I've just been so overcome with emotion that you didn't know how to express it, like words weren't enough. Uh, Maybe for you it was on a wedding day, or maybe for you it was at the birth of a child, or maybe uh, maybe it was when you were uh, finally standing there with a loved one toward the end of their life, and you just realized how much they meant. And words just don't capture the emotion. They don't capture the love uh, that you have. Um, Guys, if you're sitting next to a lady right now, now's a good chance for you to put your arm around her and kind of pull her close. You get some points in church if you do that right now and say, baby, I feel that way all the time. That's free advice for you there. Um, There are times where our vocabulary just does not capture the feeling of our heart. And uh, this has been a problem really uh, as long as we have tried to communicate with somebody else. And so if you go back in history, you can find some pretty spectacular examples of people trying to communicate their love for someone else. Uh, You're all familiar, of course, with the Indian prince who was so in love with his wife and she tragically died early. So he spent 22 years building this palace for her that is now one of the modern wonders of the world, the Taj Mahal. And it was a testimony of his love for her. Maybe you uh, remember or heard the story about uh, King Edward XIII and how he was willing to set aside the crown of England so that he could marry the love of his life. Uh, what you may not have heard about was the Russian fellow impress his fiancée and to ask her to marry him. So he hired two of Hollywood's best producers. Uh, he, he hired Aaron, Aaron Sorkin. Uh, Aaron, uh, I'm going to get their names mixed up. Aaron Sorkin. Uh, he brought these Hollywood professors in, paid them tons of money, and basically said, I want you to stage an elaborate car crash, and I'm going to be laying on the street dead, and she's going to come up, and I'm going to ask her to marry me. And so he spent thousands and thousands of dollars, staged this elaborate thing. I don't know what she said. I know what my wife would have said. But he went to a lot of effort to do that. Maybe you've heard of the couple from California that have paid currently up to $200,000 to have plastic surgery so that they could look just alike. Because that was, I know, not, not necessarily the best. I wouldn't recommend that. I'm just telling you the extent to which people will go to express this emotion that we call love. And and I want to talk for the next few weeks uh, about worship. And and I want to talk about it, we're going to, a series we're calling Poured Out, about how do we as humans communicate love to God? Uh, That's what our souls were designed for, what we were designed to do. Just like your heart was designed to beat, your soul was designed to, to worship. And, and if you're here and you'd say, I'm not a religious person, I'm not a Christian, I don't go to church very often, uh, your soul was still designed to worship something. And guess what? You do worship something. It may not be God as we would define God, but you worship something, someone, something, some object. We all gravitate towards worshiping something. How do we express love to God? There was a Christian uh, psychologist and, and, and writer and author by the name of Gary Chapman who wrote a book called Love Languages. Some of, some of you have heard of this book before. And, and the book basically says there are five basic love languages, five ways we communicate love to each other. He said some people communicate love by touch. You know these people, they're touchers, they're huggers, they're going to put their hand on you. They communicate love by touch. Other people communicate love by giving gifts. 
Some people communicate love by spending quality time with someone. Other people uh, communicate love by giving words of affirmation. They're, they're constantly encouraging. They're constantly speaking, uh, speaking encouragement in somebody's life. Other people do it by acts of service or, or by words of affirmation, by acts of service. So there are five basic ways, and here's what Gary Chapman tells us, that the way you best communicate love, the way you naturally communicate love to somebody else, is also the way you best receive their love. So guys, another point for you today, if your wife is one of those people who, who demonstrates, communicates her love by doing things, by acts of service, the best way you can tell her you love her is by you performing acts of service for her. You know, picking up your clothes off the floor. Those are a good start for you anyway. So we communicate love in particular ways. So the question seems, well, what is the way that God communicates love to us. How does he communicate love to us, and how do we, in turn, communicate love back to God? What do we do? How do we do that? So for the next several weeks, I'd like us to look at this idea about how do we communicate love to God. Now, if you've been in church long, or or maybe you come from a different faith tradition, um, worship is the way we communicate love to God. And depending on what faith tradition you were raised in, that communication may look different. So if you were raised, perhaps, in a Catholic church or in a church with a lot of liturgy in it. Uh, there's a lot of routine. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, res- call and response. And, and there's a sacredness to it, a beauty to it that you think, oh man, that captures my heart. That's how I best communicate love to God is through that sort of formal liturgy. For others, maybe you came from a faith background where it was very charismatic, very expressive, a lot of physical movement. And, and that for you captures how you communicate love for God. And in churches, a lot of times, down through the ages, we fought about these things. Like we say, no, my way of communicating love to God is the right way to communicate love to God. Well, that would sort of be like you telling your children that one of your children who is uniquely designed communicating love to you is right, but the other kids are wrong. And so you say, I want all you kids to communicate love to me the way this kid communicates love to me. Because after all, I have as a parent a specific love language that I like. And so the kid that might communicate to me in the love language that's my own love language, well, that's what I want everybody to do. Is God like that, really? I mean, do we think that God would be so limited that he would say, well, I only receive love in this one way. This one particular way that you communicate love to me is the way that I receive it. So when we come together as a church, when we come together as a congregation, we corporately are seeking to express love to God. What is it that we're doing and what is going on in the individual heart of God? The believer. I'd like us to look at a passage of scripture today, a particular story that you find actually in three different gospels. And we're going to look at it in all three, but we're going to start in John chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open to John chapter 11. We're also going to be looking at Luke chapter 10 and then Mark chapter 14 in just a little bit to pick up this one story. Because in this story, the different gospel writers who recorded it recorded it all from different angles. But they're showing us, they're demonstrating to us this reality that there are different people in this story who love Jesus and express their love to Jesus in very different ways. And yet, there is one person who's expressing love to Jesus that Jesus recognizes and said, this act will be remembered throughout all of history. So if we want to communicate love to God effectively, I think it's important for us to say, what is that one way? What is that way that Jesus sort of lifted up above the other ways to say, this is one way to communicate love to me that is effective? Luke, I mean, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 55. 
John chapter 11, it's on page 825 of the Bible in front of you. We'll also put it on the screens. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many were up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Okay, so here we see a religious ritual, a religious routine, the Jewish Passover. And this was a way that the Jews got together to express their love to God for what he had done for them during the Exodus. So they're gathering together. There's a particular set of rituals and routines that they go through to do this. They were looking for Jesus. This is the religious leaders. Looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the, to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now that's important information for you to know in just a few minutes. So basically, the, this religious festival gave them an opportunity to say, everybody comes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. If anybody sees Jesus, let us know because we've had enough and we're going to arrest him. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover. So we are now six days away from the crucifixion. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, if, if you remember in John chapter 11, Jesus performed an amazing miracle, a, a sign that demonstrated that he was the resurrection and the life. His friend Lazarus had died, and he, Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha, had called Jesus, and Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and had stirred up all kinds of controversy and all kinds of, of problems, and the religious community was in a complete uproar about this, and this is why they were looking for Jesus. But I want you to notice what Jesus did. Six days before the Passover, he knows they're looking for him, and Jesus heads straight into the problem. He heads straight into the danger zone. He's not running away from it. He's going towards it because sometimes love requires that we abandon what is safe for what is necessary that love always does what is necessary even if it's unsafe and Jesus is demonstrating his love for the world by going towards the danger and so so Jesus is heading back into Bethany where Lazarus and his family is where the miracle was performed and where there are religious people who are looking for him skip down to verse 9 of chapter 12 and just get a sense for what this crowd is doing when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there they came not only on account of him but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So now the religious leaders have two problems. Not only is Jesus a problem, but now they've got this guy who had been dead for four days walking around as a living, breathing, walking testimony of the power of Jesus. So it wasn't going to be enough just to kill Jesus. We're going to have to kill Lazarus as well. So they're out to get all of them. Go back up to verse 2 with me. So they're in this town. Jesus has made his way back. So they gave a dinner for him there Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table so of course Lazarus has been brought back to life the the, the town has been uh, celebrating this Jesus comes back to town and they're going to throw a party for Jesus just to celebrate and to give thanks to Jesus for what he's done so Martha's in the kitchen cooking Lazarus is sitting there at the table uh, but where's Mary What's going on with Mary? Well, we find out uh, from, the, from the gospel writer John, but we also get a little bit more insight into it from the gospel writer Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 38, Luke gives us another insight into this story. 
Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So Martha's in the kitchen cooking. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus. Lazarus and this whole crowd is gathered around having this banquet, and there Mary is at Jesus' feet. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. The ultimate older sister tattletale going on here. Jesus, make her get up and help me in the kitchen. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, Martha. I, did, I, I added one more. There was only two. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So, Martha is in the kitchen serving. We see Martha working hard. My guess is that Martha's love language was acts of service. That Martha was one who worked and demonstrated her love by caring for and loving other people. That's what Martha's doing. So she's in the kitchen doing what comes naturally to her. Because she's going to express love by feeding all of these people who've gathered. By feeding Jesus. But there's a moment where she looks around and she sees Mary at Jesus' feet. And something different happens in her heart. Instead of focusing on the way that she loves Jesus and the way that she demonstrates her love for him and for others, she turns her attention off of that and instead she looks at Mary. Jesus, would you make Mary get up and help me in the kitchen? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're so worried about so many things. Mary has chosen the thing that can't be taken away from her. Meanwhile, back in John chapter 12, we see what's going on with Mary. Verse 3 Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now, I want you just to imagine this setting with me for just a minute. Uh, Reclining at a Jewish table wouldn't have been like sitting at tables that we sit at today. The tables were low and there would have been cushions all around. And people to recline at the table would have leaned Uh, on the cushions towards the table with their feet extending away from the table. And so there's laughing and there's talking. And I can imagine people are asking Lazarus, Lazarus, tell us what it was like to be dead for four days. And what was it like to be called out of the tomb? And everybody's focused on Lazarus. Nobody's paying attention to Mary, except maybe Martha, who's annoyed with her that she's not in the kitchen helping. But all of a sudden, Mary slips away. Nobody even notices it. And she comes back with this jar, and she breaks the jar open, and she pours this ointment out on Jesus' feet. And she's back there. She's beginning to wash Jesus' feet. And it was only when the smell began to permeate the room that people began to be quiet. What's that smell? And they began to look around and they began to see what was going on and what it was that Mary was doing. And they began to realize how much of this ointment she had to pour out for the whole room to be filled with this this fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, here's where you insert the dun-dun-dun. One of his disciples, and John wants to make sure you know, he who was about to betray him, that Judas Iscariot, said... Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
Now, it's easy to look at Judas and make Judas the bad guy. I mean, that's, that's easy. But just so that you know, Judas wasn't the only one in the room thinking this. If you look with me at Mark chapter 14, you, you see the way Mark tells the story. And he, he tells it with a little bit of a different detail that John doesn't tell us. Listen to what John, Mark says in Mark chapter 14, verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? You see, it's easy for us to look at Judas and say, well, I'm not like Judas. But maybe we're not so much like the other disciples in the room who would have also thought that what Mary was doing was extravagant and embarrassing and was wasteful. And so they were all thinking this, but it had a profound effect on Judas. It changed the trajectory of Judas's life in this moment of this very intimate worship act that Mary was performing, something in Judas clicked. And I want you to look with me, Mark chapter 14, down a few verses, verse 10, and look what happened in Judas's heart. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. It was in that moment when Mary poured out that that nard all over Jesus' feet, when Mary went to that extravagant act of worship, something inside of Judas snapped, and he made his mind up right then that he was going to betray Jesus. At the very point that Mary was at her most vulnerable, most honest, most selfless, selfless act of worship, Judas was at the lowest point in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to compare the difference in the value that they placed on Jesus. Judas said that the that the oil that Mary poured down on Jesus' feet was valued at 300 denarii. Today, that would be equivalent to about a year's wage. So median income, this area, about $36,000. $36,000. And Mary's pouring it out on Jesus, not holding anything back. Judas would eventually betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, equivalent today of about $1,000. That's the difference in the value they placed on Jesus. $36,000, everything Mary had, and Judas sought to profit by $1,000. Listen to what Jesus says in response to Judas. John chapter 12, verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, I don't think they had any idea what Jesus was talking about yet, It was only when John wrote this after the fact that he looked back and recognized the meaning. I don't think that Mary necessarily understood what it was that she was doing, anointing his body, preparing his body for burial. It was only after the fact that they would look back and know. But Jesus in this moment is telling them, leave her alone. She's preparing my body for burial. For the poor, you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now this verse has been used by some to justify not caring for the poor. And that's not what this verse says or what this verse means. What this verse does say is Jesus is saying, listen, the poor will always be with you. You will always have an opportunity to serve me and love me by generous acts, by acts of giving. You can always love me by loving the poor, but I will only be with you, Judas. I will only be with you, Mary. I will only be with you, Martha, for a little bit of time. I'm only going to be here for a little bit of time. Leave her alone while she performs this selfless act of worship. And and in Jesus' response to these three people, his response to Judas, his response to Martha, and his response to Mary, we learn about expressing love for God. We learn something really important 
from these three characters. I want to share each of these with you. From Judas. Judas, I think this is what we learn. Don't allow the important to replace the essential. Don't allow the important to replace the essential. This is true in your own family, in the way you love your own kids, in the way you love your spouse, in the way you love your, your friends and your neighbors. Don't allow the important to replace the essential. We do it all the time. Jobs are important, but they're not essential. What you have in your family, the love that you have for them, you will have another job. You can find another job. <laughs> you may not have another chance at a relationship with your children or your spouse. Judas reminds us that we run the risk of allowing the important to replace the essential. And Jesus told Judas, 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 you will always have the poor with you. You will always have the opportunity to serve and love me by caring for the poor. But I will only be with you for about six more days. You don't even know that yet. Don't allow the important to be replaced by the essential. But to Martha... To Martha, he said, Martha, you are worried about many things. You're distracted by anxiety and worry. And I think in Martha, we learn this. There is no place for anxiety and worry in our relationship with God. I don't know what your day-to-day living is like and how you go about your days. But I wonder, are you defined by worry and anxiety? Are you worried about what's going to happen at school tomorrow, at work this week? Are, are you worried about a loved one who maybe is having a difficult time? Either, either something's going on in their life or, or maybe you're worried about how to pay the bills. All these worries and anxieties that can grow up. And, and the scripture says, Jesus told, said in the parable, that these worries and anxieties can choke out our faith. I think Jesus is saying to Martha, Martha, you are worried and anxious about so many things. But only one thing matters. The apostle Paul said, said, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, with prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Where is it going to guard your heart and your mind? In Christ Jesus. By focusing your attention on this God who would love you so much that he would not even spare his own son for you. How much more does he care about the small details of your life? God cares for you. Martha, don't be worried and anxious. Instead, be more like Mary. Look at what Mary is doing. Choose the one thing that matters. The one thing that matters. What is that? It's love. You see, it's love. That's what God has always asked of us. Jesus was asked in one time, at one, one point in his ministry to describe the most important commandment. And Jesus said in, in each of the Gospels, we find a recording, Matthew twenty two thirty seven. he said that the, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love him with everything you have. Love him relentlessly. Love him tirelessly. Pour yourself out in love to him. And what happens when we don't do that? What happens when we hold back our love from God? Well, we can look a lot like the other people in that room. We can look a lot like Mary or Judas and the other disciples who, who are calculating the waste of the oil that was poured out on Jesus' feet. We become restrained. We become cautious. We become self-centered. You see, there was nothing wrong with the fact that Martha worshiped Jesus through acts of service. Nothing wrong with that. There are many of you here who love God that way. I see it all the time. You, you, you serve God tirelessly. You show up and you 
prepare food boxes and you help refugees and you will serve people in food lines and you will, you will do whatever you can in acts of service because that's how you worship God and that's how you love God and that's great and there's nothing wrong with that and there was nothing wrong with the fact that that's how Martha chose to demonstrate her love to God. There was also nothing wrong with the fact that Judas, if he were being honest, Judas was trying to project the idea that he loved God by caring for the poor. By, by giving gifts, by, by being generous. There's nothing wrong with that. What was wrong in both of these cases is that we see beyond their external actions into their hearts, and their hearts are not satisfied. Martha's not satisfied that she is loving Jesus with acts of service. She's looking over her shoulder at Mary and saying, why isn't Mary loving Jesus like I'm loving Jesus? And Judas is calculating the waste and the cost. It wasn't the problem that Judas was, wanting, was proclaiming that he loved God by caring for the poor, even though we know that wasn't true, that wasn't honest. There was nothing wrong with loving God by loving the poor. The problem was he was looking over his shoulder and he was criticizing the way Mary was choosing to love Jesus by pouring out her offering on his feet. You see, in both of these cases, Martha's case and Judas' case, and the other disciples' case, they lacked the one thing that Mary had, and that was love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor, Judas... And if I surrender my body in the flames in service, Martha, but I don't have love, guess what? I gain nothing. See, the issue here is not the way in which we express our worship to God. It's the intention of our heart as we do it. Are we focused exclusively on loving God? Loving God and pouring out all that we have for him. Or are we focused on other people? in the way that they're worshiping or the way we think they're not worshiping because they're not worshiping God and loving God the way I do. See, that was the one thing that Mary had that the others didn't, love. See, to be an empty vessel, like Mary was an empty vessel, our love for God must be unmeasured. The ointment that Mary poured out on Jesus' feet would have been about a year's wages. Some people think that that ointment was possibly her dowry the 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 gift that was set aside in order to be given to her future husband that special man who would come along and I'm sure Mary thought there is no one ever going to come along in my life no man is ever going to come along in my life and be more special than Jesus I might as well use it on him and so it was unmeasured she held nothing back she broke it and poured out every drop on Jesus feet in an act of unmeasured love for him do you love God that way? Unmeasured? That you'd be willing to pour out whatever it is, all your service, all your generosity, all your words of effort, whatever it is and whatever way you're designed to love God, is it unmeasured? The second thing we learned from Mary is that it was unrestrained. Cleansing somebody's feet was the lowest job for the lowest servant in the house. Even a rabbi did not expect his own disciples to wash his feet. That job was reserved for the lowest of the low. Remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus walked up? He said, I'm not even worthy to unlace his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be the lowest servant in Jesus' household. And what does Mary do? 
she doesn't just talk about the fact that she should be unlacing Jesus' sandals. She literally comes up and she literally washes his feet, doing the job of the lowest servant of all, and she takes her hair down. This would be like today in polite dinner company, a woman hiking her skirt up to her thigh. I mean, it was just, it was completely, completely unrestrained. She was unaware of what people were thinking. She was so, so wrapped up in this moment with this man who had given everything for her, who had brought her brother back to life. She wasn't going to measure the oil out. She was going to pour it all out. She wasn't going to hold back in her expression of love for, that, for Jesus in that moment. She was going to be totally unrestrained. And the third thing that we learn from Mary about worship is that it's unselfish. Mary poured out everything she had with no thought for those who were around her. I, I, it makes me think of the story, the Old Testament story. Some of you may have heard it. You may be familiar with it. When David um, was getting the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was this, uh, was this box where the Ten Commandments had been stored, and it sort of became the centerpiece of Jewish, uh, the Jewish religion and the Jewish faith. And David wanted the Ark of the Covenant brought back into the city of Jerusalem. And so he had gone to get the Ark, and as he's bringing it back, going down the streets, the crowds are gathering around, and they burst into this sort of parade of worship. And David is stripping off his clothes in front of him. I don't know if it's because it was hot or what was going on, but David's stripping off his clothes, and he is dancing in front of this parade of people back into the city of Jerusalem, just completely unrestrained, completely unaware of himself, completely unmeasured. He's coming back into Jerusalem. And as he comes back into Jerusalem, standing in the balcony of his palace is his wife, Michal. And she's looking down and the scripture says, Michal despised him in that moment. See, David's focus in that moment was completely on God. Michal's focus was on David. And she missed the point. And Martha missed the point. And Judas missed the point. And I just wonder, when we gather for worship each and every week, are we Missing the point. Mary poured out everything she had with no thought for those around her. And listen, when you are consumed with love for God, you become strangely unaware of the thoughts and the critiques of other people. That's exactly the kind of unmeasured, unrestrained, unselfish love that God looked at and saw in Mary and said, this act of worship will be remembered throughout all of history. So when we come to worship, what is it that we're coming here to do? <laughs> worship. Let's talk about worship. Now, what do you define as worship? Is it that attitude you put on on Sundays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m.? First service maybe second service and if the congregation be big like that third service is worship that countenance you put on on your face when your favorite song is being sang by the music director is that worship because you see, your motive and your worship are linked together. 
Why do you worship? Do you worship because you want stuff from Almighty God? Or do you worship because you have an understanding that He is God all by Himself? That He's able to do exceedingly? Ah, well, that's religion. A lot of people be preaching that stuff all the time. But they lack understanding. What do you call worship? Can you worship without a song? Can you worship without pastor's choir? <laughs> the ones whom the pastor has deemed worthy to lead the congregation in worship, they must sing before he preaches. The one that beats me the most is when the choir is done with Sunday ministration and everybody's told to sit in the choir stall. And the man of God comes and says, Our worship today was not in point. Last I checked, our worship was unto God. Uh, so whilst we were worshiping, you were analyzing? I mean, some of us leave the service feeling so holy and righteous because you cried and you lifted up holy hands. Don't know if your worship went beyond the scaffolding, though. Well, I ain't God. He knows better. If I shut down your bank account, if I took away your connections, your friends, your family, your car, that job, your wife. Oh, my God. Would you still worship? Would you still worship? Seriously. Seriously. If you really want to worship God, you better worship in spirit and in truth, not in self or deceit. Tell me. Are you conscious when you worship? Conscious of your perfume? Conscious of your tie? Conscious of your shoes? Or are you one of those who analyzes stuff during service? You be checking out the note? Checking out them dancing? Well, I guess you know better. Because you're God. Ain't you? How can you worship If God doesn't know you in private, he will not vouch for anything you do in public. Don't be like a Pharisee. It's got nothing to do with the appearance of the outside. It all has to do with your heart. And by the way, worship has nothing to do with the speed of the song. A song of worship could be fast and furious. Or it could be slow-mo. The focus really are on the lyrics of the song, not necessarily on the melodies. Because you see, songs are tools of spiritual navigation. Now, when you worship, where's your mind at? For worship each and every week, I wonder if you've ever given much thought to where the focus of your heart is. When we're singing a song or somebody's singing a song or when somebody's preaching or teaching are we more consumed with evaluating and measuring the way they worship as compared to the way we choose to worship? Or are we focused on pouring out everything that we have and everything that we are for the God who has poured out everything that he is for us so that we might have the privilege to approach him in worship? Are we consumed with our own thoughts and our own desires and our own wants or are we consumed with love for Jesus? 
We're going to sing a song that you've probably sung before. It's a familiar song and so familiar that maybe the words have lost their meaning for you. And if they have, I'm so sorry they have. And I would invite you maybe just to listen to the song at first until you can sing the song with the sincerity of Mary pouring yourself out to say, I surrender everything. Not because I'm being pressured, not because I'm being expected, not because I'm trying to compare myself to somebody else, but because it's a response of love for the God who has given everything to me. Maybe you would come down and you would say, I need to pray. I need to pray at these steps. I need to pray with somebody else. I need to cross an aisle and apologize to them because I've been busy like Martha, doing my thing but looking over my shoulder, criticizing them for what they're not doing that I am doing. Maybe you need to apologize to somebody else. Maybe we need to set the record straight with each other so that we can come before God like Mary with a pure heart, motivated entirely out of love. Will you stand together? as we pray and then we sing this song, I Surrender All. And I am praying that it's more than words that you sing, but a posture of your heart. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to call you our Father and to approach you like Mary, unmeasured, unrestrained, unselfish. Thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus, that you, Lord, were not measured in your love for us, that you, Lord, were not restrained in your love for us, that you were not selfish but selfless on the cross. Lord, may we approach you with the same heart and desire. In whatever way we love you, maybe we demonstrate that love by words of compassion and encouragement to others. Maybe we display that love by acts of generosity and giving gifts. Maybe we display that love through acts of service. Lord, whatever it is, may we do it May we do it with an abandon and a selflessness that says, Lord, we love you. That's why we worship, because we love you. Lord, may we truly surrender all that we are in Jesus' name. Amen.